What is up, you guys? Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. Listen to this. This is a review from Amy P. I am finally losing weight. I have been actively trying to lose weight for four months without any results. After adding Firestarter to my clean, active lifestyle, the scale finally started to go down. I lost 10 pounds in a month and can't wait to see future results. How cool is that? Just adding Firestarter, our high stearic acid tallow uh, from hardened soil to the scale, to her diet, Amy's been able to increase her fat burning. And this is something I've talked about a lot in the past, the value of stearic acid in the human diet. Today's podcast is with Tucker Goodrich. We're going to talk about the foil, the other side of stearic acid, which is omega-6 fatty acids, which I think push things in the opposite direction. But stearic acid is super beneficial. If you are not getting enough stearic acid from animal fat in your diet, check out Firestarter. This is an amazing supplement. So many people benefit from getting this extra grass-fed tallow from suet, which is the kidney fat of animals, which is super high in stearic acid. And they see incredible results in all sorts of ways. So really, really good stuff with Firestarter. And also, guys, if you haven't checked out Whole Package, our newest men's supplement with testicle, as a guy, I can tell you this stuff is amazing. Adding testicle to your life is really incredible. It's, it's kind of a game changer in the best way. And I hope you check it out. So check out Firestarter, check out Whole Package, check us out at heartandsoil.co. This is why we do what we do. We wanna help you get all of these unique nutrients and organs in your diet in a much easier way than eating them fresh or raw. We're gonna put them in desiccated organ capsules for you. They're grass-fed, they're grass-finished. They're from regeneratively raised farms in New Zealand. They're the highest quality we can make. And this is how we help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. So as I hinted out, um, you can check us at, out at heartandsoil.co, that is .co. So this week's podcast is with Tucker Goodrich. Tucker's been on the podcast before. This is his second podcast. He has an amazing background in engineering and computer science, and he's a, definitely an engineering type thinker, and he does a great job of breaking down the nuances of polyunsaturated fatty acids with me yet again. I've done so many podcasts on polyunsaturated fatty acids in the past that if you really wanna dive into this topic, there is a veritable library of this waiting for you on my podcast. You can go back and look at episodes with Chris Kenobi. I've done two with Ivor Cummins, another one with uh, Tucker Goodrich, done two episodes with Peter Gilbermilski. But in this episode, Tucker and I do something really cool. We go, in, uh, we go against or we talk about the, the criticisms of the criticisms of polyunsaturated fatty acids. Because when Tucker and myself and others talk about polyunsaturated fatty acids, especially linoleic acid being bad for humans, there are many in the nutrition space who push back. And so we talk about a debate that Tucker recently had with somebody on polyunsaturated fatty acids, why this other person's points may have had validity and when they didn't have validity. And um, we really break it down for you guys in a special way. I think this is a really amazing podcast, one of my favorite that I've ever done. If you're interested in omega-6 fatty acids and the real roots of human chronic illness, I think you will find this one incredibly, incredibly valuable. And I think you're gonna, your mind is gonna be blown. So share it with people you know who really need to benefit from this information. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It's where we... Uh, really help new people find this, this realm of nutritional information. It's how I like to share the podcast. You can leave me a review wherever you want, but if you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, I'm going to give away a free copy of my book, a signed copy every month 
to somebody that leaves me a review there on Apple Podcasts. So thank you for that. Thank you also to my sponsors. You guys know I'm a huge fan. I talked about this recently when I was in um, when I was in San Jose. I was talking about my Blazing Bull Grill because I went to San Jose recently on a trip with my Airbnb. I was there getting furniture for my house. I had an Airbnb and I kept setting off the fire alarm in this Airbnb and I thought, I miss my Blazing Bull Grill. I brought this made in the USA grill from Blazing Bull back to Costa Rica with me from Austin. I have one in Austin and one here. It's an amazing revolutionary 1500 degree cooking grill. It gives it the best sear I've ever had. I'm gonna make dinner for my friends tonight, right after I finish recording this introduction on the Blazing Bull grill. And they are stoked because this is the best grill I've ever used. It's easy to clean. It's like I said, it's made in the USA. It's amazing componentry. You can cook all kinds of things in there that cook very fast. There's a really intuitive mechanism for raising it up and down, getting it close to the heating elements, which like I said, get up to 1500 degrees. This thing will make anyone in your life happy or really just change the game for you in terms of the way that you cook meat. You can cook all kinds of meat, you can cook seafood, chicken, steak. You can even cook vegetables if you want in there. I don't know why you would, but if you wanted to, you could. It's amazing. Check them out at blazingbullgrill.com. The code is CarnivoreMD for uh, some money off the grill. I think you'll get 150 bucks off your Blazing Bull Grill if you use my code. Again, the place to find this is blazingbullgrills.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD. That'll get you 150 bucks off the Blazing Bull Grill. And like I said, it's made in the USA. This thing makes the best steaks I've ever had. You will not be sorry that you got this thing. All right, I also wanna give a shout out to my friends at Let's Get Checked. I really appreciate these guys because as you guys all know, guys and girls, hormone levels are declining, men's testosterone levels are tanking, and symptoms of testosterone deficiency are myriad, erectile dysfunction, depression, sleep disturbances. It's associated with worse cardiovascular outcomes. So how are you gonna know if you have low testosterone without getting it checked. So you need to get your blood work checked, but that involves going to a doctor, which can be a hassle. Let's Get Checked makes it easy. You can just go on to trylgc.com front slash Paul, or use my coupon code CarnivoreMD, and you can get labs ordered online. They ship straight to your door overnight. You choose your test online. You get it next day, discrete packaging. You activate your test. You collect your sample. You return it prepaid shipping envelope. You get your results in two to five days. It's so easy. You get results on five hormone levels, testosterone, sex hormone, binding globulin, prolactin, estrogen, free androgen index. They also have stuff like HSCRP, lipids, all kinds of other blood work you can do. It makes it so easy. When you get your results, they're reviewed by a physician, a nurse contacts you for a consultation over the phone, and you can go from there. Their laboratories are CLIA approved, which is the highest ranking level of accreditation and all the data are anonymized. So go to trylgc.com front slash Paul, use the code Paul to get 20% off your uh, lab work at Let's Get Checked. I really like these programs. I really like Let's Get Checked. I think lab work and testing should be democratized. That as humans, we should be able to get these blood work whenever we want so we really know what's going on with our health and we can make the changes and the steps necessary to do this. So know if you have low testosterone, get it checked, and then change your diet, do an animal-based diet, check out a whole package from Hardened Soil. We'll get you back for sure. Also want to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures. 
white oak, these are the OGs of regenerative agriculture. They're in Bluffton, Georgia. You've heard me talk about them over and over, and I love them. I can't talk about them enough. They have grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised beef, lamb, goat. They have ducks, chickens, which are corn and soy-free. They have eggs. They have organs. They have suet if you want stearic acid that way. They have all kinds of good stuff. Whiteoakpastures.com. It's some of the most delicious meat I've ever eaten. I miss it when I'm not in the States. And I always love when my box comes from White Oak every month. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first order. As I've said in the past, you cannot abstain from voting with your dollars. We are either voting for multinational corporations or we are voting for small regenerative farms like White Oak that are doing agriculture the way it should be done. And this is what we should be doing because we know that regenerative agriculture supports ecosystems and is critical for the persistence of healthy land and generations on this planet. It's the way to do it. It's going to be better for you, better for the planet. I fully support what they're doing. So check out whiteoakpastures.com. I love these guys. Carnivore MD will get you 10% off your first order. I also love the work that belcampo.com is doing, B-E-L-C-A-M-P-O. They're a regenerative farm in Northern California. So you got your Georgia farm, White Oak Pastures, you got your Northern California farm, Belcampo, depending where you live. And Belcampo is also doing certified organic, grass-fed, grass finishing. They have all kinds of great stuff. I love their Uruguayan ribeyes. Uh, they also have a regenerative farm in Uruguay. It's amazing. And they are really committed to quality and transparency. And they've been so good after the recent kerfuffle about showing where their meat is sourced from. And I think that they are really a good company to support. You can use Carnivore MD to get 20% off your order at belcampo.com and check out their ribeyes, check out their Uruguayan ribeyes, check out their organs. But again, regenerative agriculture is really the answer that so many of us are seeking in terms of how to eat meat ethically, how to support ecosystems, and how to ensure future generations on this planet have good quality food to eat. So support these farms and know that you can get good quality meat wherever you are. All right, guys, that's it for today on the sponsors. Thank you to all those guys. Check us out at hardensoil.co, get some whole package, get some fire starter. On to the podcast with Tucker Goodrich. You guys are going to love this one. Tucker, thanks for coming back on the podcast, my friend. It is good to have you here today. It's a pleasure, Paul. It's, uh, I was really excited to do this again. Um, our previous discussion, which I just listened to again this morning, has apparently had a real big impact on a lot of people. And I thought it would be, and it was a really good conversation, you know, to give both of us credit. <laughs> we covered practically everything. Um, you know, and it's, I, I really wanted to follow up on that and, you know, address some things that have come up since then, as you're well aware. Amazing. And so if people are curious, if you really want polyunsaturated fatty acids, omega-6, 101 and 102, um, please listen to the first podcast that Tucker and I did on my show, Fundamental Health. We can link to that in the show notes. There are also probably five other podcasts that I've done in the past on uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids and linoleic acid because I find this topic so fascinating. There are two with Chris Kenobi, uh, who has never seen, never seen Star Wars, and there is at least one with Ivor Cummins, and there are two with Peter Dobromilski. Uh, those last two with Peter are quite technical and have to do with electron transport stuff that we probably won't get into today with Tucker, but um, you know, it's quite interesting to me, Tucker, before we pressed record, we were talking about how one of the reasons that linoleic acid um, discussions can be so confusing for people is that the data uh, must be looked at very carefully 
and very intentionally. Like so many things, I think LDL can be the same way, that if you're not really careful about how you look at the data for LDL or linoleic acid and you don't understand the difference between interventional trials, mechanistic explanations, and the potential shortcomings of epidemiology, anyone can cherry pick a handful of studies that make linoleic acid look good or bad. So one of the things I was excited to do in this podcast was to address a critique that Alan Flanagan has of of your position, of my position, of the position of many in this space on linoleic acid. And so you did a great blog post on this, which I'll screen share so people can see your blog post on this, which we will be kind of using as a guide in today's podcast. Um, and also, uh, I want to make sure that people see Alan Flanagan's uh, original uh, sort of criticism of these ideas, much of which we'll be addressing today. So this is Tucker's post at your blog, which is uh, yelling-stop.blogspot, which is awesome. People should definitely check out Tucker's work there. And then Alan's post here, uh, I believe Alan is at Alinea Nutrition uh, of Rats and Sydney Diet Heart, which is a trial that we will be getting into today in detail um, because he feels that there is mostly pseudoscience surrounding polyunsaturated fat fear. So, um, and it, additionally, to note, uh, Alan and I just did a debate on Mark Bell's uh, Power Project blog or podcast, which has not been released yet, although it was supposed to have been something. I think I got bumped out of line by a live podcast they did with Zach Bitter, which I can totally understand. <laughs> um, but hopefully that should be released soon. And we do go over a bunch of these issues and uh you know if uh paul and i reference that it's because we both heard the audio which they were kind enough to share with us in anticipation of our discussion here today so yeah, we may reference out. stuff that you can't see yet but it should be out shortly shout out to mark and Encima and andrew for letting uh letting me get a sneak peek at that audio of that debate, which was really great, and people should definitely listen to it when it comes out. But I thought that there were a lot of really interesting things that came up in your rebuttal to Alan's concerns, and also in the debate. And I thought we could start with Ramona Band. This is a really fascinating rabbit hole, and um, why don't you walk us through this drug, uh, how it works, and how this relates to dietary linoleic acid, and then we'll maybe go down the vagus nerve rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah, so Ramonaban is, we discussed it briefly in our previous uh, podcast. Um, Ramonaban is a very effective weight loss drug. Um, in animal models, it completely prevents obesity. In human models, it's quite effective. And it not only reduces obesity, but it reduces HbA1c and uh, lots of other measures of cardiovascular disease risk um, in ways that aren't entirely clear why it should have those effects. What Ramonabant does is block the endocannabinoid pathway, which is, you know, so we're all familiar with this term from pot smoking called the munchies, right? So. THC is a drug, the endocannabinoid pathway is so named because it's similar, the, the uh, chemicals that affect it were first discovered from research in pot cannabis, right? So Ramonabant blocks that pathway. So if you inject an animal with THC from marijuana or with uh, these, hum these 
natural endocannabinoids, primarily 2-AG and anandamide. Um, say you take a rat and you feed it so it doesn't want to eat anymore, and then you inject these chemicals into its brain, it will immediately start eating again. And regardless of what level of satiation it had reached, right? So they literally induce what's called hyperphagia, overeating. Um, and Ramonavamp blocks that pathway, and it's super effective. Now, unfortunately, it had the additional effect of making people want to kill themselves, and I guess rats in cages don't really have opportunities for suicide, so that effect was missed, although they did, in some of the human trials, uh, not include people with depression <laughs> as candidates. So they probably could have caught this one if they'd wanted to. Um, they were certainly aware of it. Uh, but anyway, um, so there was in 2012 a really neat study coming out of the NIH with this former graduate student, Anita Alfheim from, I think, Norway, uh, working with Christopher Ramsden, whose work we will be discussing a lot. And the title of the paper pretty much says it all. Linoleic acid induces obesity through upregulating anandamide and 2-AG. And they note that this is the mechanism of action of this Ramonavant drug. So uh, there we go. This is about as clear a pathway as exists in the literature. It has been reproduced multiple times that I'm aware of um, ever since this was done. Some papers who were intentionally trying to reproduce this effect and some people who were working in parallel but still came to the same conclusion. Um, it appears that in animal models, if you want to reliably induce insulin resistance and obesity, you use linoleic acid. Yay! Um, and then Ramonavant blocks this effect, you know, and this, you know, there's a whole range of papers looking at the effects of uh, 2-AG on mitochondria. Um, but it's a little unclear to me at this point exactly how all this mechanism works. It's just quite clear that it does work. Um, and, you know, so when you start looking at the human experiment, uh, or the human experience, um, oh, incidentally, I should also mention that THC is dronabinil, which is a drug that is used to induce hyperphagia in cancer, cachexia, and also in... Um, oh darn, what's it called when people don't want to eat? Anorexia. Um, so we know THC has this effect in human. It's prescribed for this effect in human. And, you know, we know through extension to 2A, 2AG and Ramonabant that this effect is blocked in human. Sadly, the studies that were looking at the direct effects of TAG on obesity got foobarred by Ramonaband being pulled by the market right in the middle of the study that was trying to prove it, <laughs> which ended the study, although they to their, still published a paper talking about it, so that was kind of interesting. But um, at any rate, um, so this is a pretty clear pathway, right? I mean, it's shown in humans, shown in animals. It, it seems to affect all the things that we're interested in. As In our last po podcast, I referred to Ramonaband Ramonaband as a miracle drug aside from the suicide effect. And they're still looking into this pathway they've discovered in animal models that it seems to be just as effective if you get a endocannabinoid receptor blocker that only works in the gut, right? Which gets us into a really interesting alternative pathway for this, um, 
<laughs> Paul's nodding vigorously. Yes, go there, go there. <laughs> so, um, Di Patrizio and at uh, all looked at what happens if you feed rats. Um, you know, they were looking at the effects of these peripheral endocannabinoid blockers working in the gut. And they discovered that there's a circuit going from the gut to the brain and back. And if you cut the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that controls gut function and connects it to the brain, that this effect no longer works, right? So this induction of overeating depends on a connection to the brain. Um, so that seems to be what is happening is that you're basically blocking the signal from the gut that it's received to AG telling the brain, oh, yes, we want to eat. And the brain sends a signal back saying, eat, 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 right? And cutting the nerve blocks that signal. Now, there's a procedure that we use quite commonly to block hyperphagia, and it's called a gastric bypass. And they've looked at um, the endocannabinoid products and how they're affected by gastric bypass. And it appears that in animals and in humans, that what is happening is they are effectively severing these sensors in the gut so that they can't send the signal to the brain. And that's one of the reasons that gastric bypass works. And the reason gastric bypass stops working with time is that the gut grows, the gut is an amazingly robust organ. I mean, you know, when I had my colon resection, they cut eight inches out of my colon, stitched it back together, and in two and a half days, I was at a pool party eating hot dogs and drinking beer. I mean, it's unbelievable how effective your gut is at healing itself. Um, so what happened, what seems to happen, they're speculating in gastric bypass is that over time it grows back these receptors or grows the nerves back or something that allows the brain again to start getting this overeating sim uh, signal. So. You know, that's, again, a real nice confirmation of this pathway in both animals and in humans. It seems to be central to the whole process. And it seems not to depend on the mitochondria because what's happening is, you know, basically before these fats even get in your body, it's happening with sensors, food sensors, telling your body information about what you're eating. Now, what's one other point that's very interesting here is Di Patricio looked at a bunch of different fats and tried to figure out which fats induced hyperphagia. And it's not just linoleic acid. Oleic acid, which is the fat in olive oil, also induces overeating. Um, but oleic acid also produces this chemical similar, another endocannabinoid similar to 2-AG and anandamide, but produced from oleic acid called OEA. And OEA is basically a stop eating signal. And in the rodent models, eating excess linoleic acid in conjunction with oleic acid seems to block the production of this, your full signal. So you've got two hyperphagia signals, one from LA and one from OEA, and the stop eating signal doesn't happen anymore. Well, oops. <laughs> that's a bit of a problem. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's about as straightforward, I think, as it gets and explains, you know, so they look at the Tsimene, this Bolivian hunter-gatherer population down in Bolivia, and they discover that, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, they discover that uh, 
you know, they are starting to get fat and they start trying to figure out why are they getting fat. And the first thing they came up with, with was it's the people with motorboats. <laughs> so there you go. Motorboats cause obesity. Boom. Done. Let's go home, guys. Um, obviously, that's ridiculous. But what it turns out is the people who have motorboats can go to the food store more often and buy industrial foods. And then they went back and they looked at all of their food items and the paper, you know, found that it was the vegetable oils they were consuming that seemed to be the signal. So, you know, we've got, path, you know, multiple points of, as, as folks like to say, multiple converging lines of evidence pointing at this as a solution. And I go over a lot of the same ev evidence in the uh, debate with Alan Flanagan, probably in a little more detail. So um, if you're interested in that, you know, that's definitely something that you should go look at. And I've got a, <laughs> one of these days I'll finish my obesity post, which last I checked was like 49 pages printed long, going through all of these mechanisms in detail with all the studies. Um, I think I had 96 references last time I looked. God, it's terrible. But, uh, so anyway, so. I was trying to keep up with you with all the studies. So as you guys saw, if you're watching the YouTube video, you saw that, that on his blog, Tucker will have show notes from his debate with Alan Flanagan, in which all of these studies are noted. Again, we'll link to that in the show notes if you guys want to see this. But as, as I was hearing you talk about this, and as I remembered from the conversation with Romanovant, I really thought this was interesting, that, hey, here's this drug that blocks CB1 and CB2 receptors, which are the cannabinoid receptors in the human body, which can be activated by both exogenous uh, cannabinoids, THC or others, or um, the products of linoleic acid breakdown, 2-AG, uh, anandamide potentially, and that these are a signal for hyperphagia and that you can, abut, that you can abrogate hyperphagia by blocking those receptors. And then I, I was not aware of the connections with gastric bypass. Um, Ruin why gastric bypass is the one that we usually think of. It's sort of this complex surgical procedure that I never fully understood when I was in medical school. You like cut the jejunum and then you take a loop and you make this blind loop with the stomach and it's, it's this crazy thing that, that surgeons do. But it, it was always interesting to me that- And it's it, very effective short term. It is very I mean, effective. It's somewhat yeah. dreadful, but it is very effective in the short term. It creates a lot of problems with blind loop syndrome and dumping syndrome and malabsorption because you're cutting out pieces of the jejunum, presumably, that are important for the absorption of vitamin B12. Which the things. jejunum is the first part of the small intestine after the stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the duodenum. If I remember that jejunum, correctly. The, the duodenum, the jejunum, and then the ileum. So duodenum. Right, right, right. Okay. Thank so you. It's really, technically, it's a second part. There's, there's this ligament in the, in the small intestines called the ligament of trites that all of these surgical residents love to quiz you on when you're in medical school and be like, where does the, <laughs> where does the jejunum start? And that's, that's like burning my head from traumatic 2 a.m. Pimping is what we call it in medical school when the residents try and make you look bad by asking you hard questions. Anyway, uh, they do all of this stuff, they cut, they rearrange, and it is fascinating as Tucker is uh, explaining that when you do that, um, you have to cut branches of the vagus nerve. Uh, this, this vagal nerve circuit is quite important and it, it does appear that 2-AG is having an effect in the stomach, in the gut, in the jejunum, in the duodenum, potentially mediated through the vagal nerve, the vagus nerve. And so it's fascinating. I forget who it was, but there's somebody whose name I'll remember who has this kind of uh, trite saying that like what happens in the vagus doesn't stay in the vagus. Because, uh, you know, the vagus nerve is this large nerve that goes all the way to your brain and has branches everywhere, the diaphragm, the stomach, the intestines. And so it is sort of this 
this tendril, this tentacle coming down from the brain into our body to survey what's going on in our stomach and in our sort of uh, gastrointestinal, the peritoneal cavity. And when you introduce foods in there that, that have uh, a precursor effect and become these uh, molecules like 2-AG, you can stimulate the vagus nerve to send signals to the brain. Lo and behold, you overeat. This is quite fascinating. And how interesting that um, some of this may be mediated by even 2-AG traveling in the vagus nerve and then binding to receptors in the brain, or maybe Ramona Band is blocking CB1 and CB2 receptors in the gut as well. But there are two other things that I'll mention and then we'll move on here. The first is that there's a really interesting connection between the vagus nerve and Parkinson's, which is not the topic of this conversation, uh, connected with lectins potentially. This is the BRAC and Hawk hypothesis. I talk about this in, in my book, The Carnivore Code, but it's an epidemiology study. They haven't done the study in humans, but they've done epidemiology in a Danish cohort, I believe. People who had had um, truncal vagotomy, which is where they cut the vagus nerve at the trunk for uh, severe gastritis, uh, they have a much lower incidence of Parkinson's disease relative to people who have had super selective vagotomy, which means they only cut certain small branches of the vagus nerve. And the it's sort of the hypothesis that came out of this is, is there something, this is the Brack and Hawk hypothesis, is there something in the gut that is traveling retrograde through the vagus nerve into the brain that is affecting the distriatal neurons, the dopaminergic neurons of the substantia nigra um, that, are, that are really the epicenter of uh, pathology and Parkinsonism. And then in rats and in C. elegans, which is a worm model, they've actually been able to see this play out. They haven't done it in humans because it's pretty hard to do a biopsy of the substantia nigra in a living human, but um, yeah. So here's, here's the paper demonstrating that circuit uh, yeah, from exactly. 2018, which I got from Stefan Guillenet. Perfect. And so in rats and in uh, worms, they've been able to introduce lectins, which are carbohydrate binding proteins, tag them with uh, some sort of fluorescent molecule, and they can see them traveling retrograde, these lectins traveling retrograde through the vagus nerve and ending up in the substantia nigra. Anyway, I just thought that was so fascinating. Yet another connection to the vagus nerve. Um, if you guys are curious about lectins, there's other podcasts for you there. But, yes. <laughs> but I we've got a big that, enough topic here today. I know. We've got a big enough topic today. But I think that this, this circuitry around reward and eating behavior is particularly relevant because when we look at chronic disease burden, we all, whether you're from Alan Fanagan's perspective or Tucker's perspective and my perspective, we all have to say chronic disease burden has exploded in, in our country in the last 100 years. And this is within the time frame that we've been monitoring it. So it doesn't seem to be- Well, we all should say, but there are some folks who dispute that, which I think is crazy. really a bit ridiculous and right. entirely missing the whole point of this problem. Exactly. But I've seen it. And I mean, I've seen it just in the last couple of days, you know, somebody observes, you know, oh, the semen A don't have heart disease and somebody comes up, somebody else who's an MD comes up with all these ridiculous reasons why that's the case. And it's like, you know, the whole medical literature is full of this. It's not even debatable that this wasn't, that all these things are recent, right? I mean, it's like literally like arguing the earth is flat to argue that people have always had chronic cardiovascular disease, for instance, at these levels. It's just absurd. It is. And most of us realize that and admit that. And so even if you don't believe 
that, that polyunsaturated fats are the culprit. You have to have something as the culprit. And often, right. often the other side of the equation, and Alan argued this on Mark Bell's podcast, was that it was just overeating. And perhaps I'm oversimplifying his argument, but um, I, I don't think so. That, that and well, you know, but let's give credit, right? It is just overeating. The question is why? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's important to understand this doesn't just affect humans. It affects all the animals that eat human foods. So, you know, if you're going to argue that for some reason everybody on the planet decided to start overeating, then you also have to explain why all the raccoons started overeating and the pigeons and the rats. And, you know, there's like some, we all saw some meme on Twitter that made us all decide that we're going to make ourselves fat, you know. Okay, yeah, it happened 100 years before Twitter was invented, but still, you know, you get the idea. There's got to be some sort of mechanism in the foods that we're all eating. There's no other good explanation for it because it happens in every single environment. And, yeah, there's just, there's so much there. And so the question then becomes, as you're saying, why are we overeating so much? And the answer, the, the, I think the, the competing answer would be, oh, it's all of this processed food which is hyperpalatable. Well, why is the processed food hyperpalatable? Could right. it be because it contains evolutionarily inconsistent levels of linoleic acid, which are converted to uh, 2-AG and stimulating reward circuits in the brain, and uh, excess amounts of linoleic acid could also have pathological effects in the human body at the mitochondrial level. Tucker kind of alluded to this earlier. That's the conversation with Peter Dobromilski. We're not going to go deeply down that rabbit hole today. But at a lot of levels, there is interesting evidence pointing to this this potentially significantly negative effect from excess linoleic acid in the human diet. And um, I'll just say this, and then we can move on to another topic, that it, it, it kind of frustrates me because the other side, and I don't really mean to make it quite this black and white, but there are people in the nutrition space who want to say there are no bad foods, all foods are okay, don't make foods bad, you know, just eat a variety of foods. And if you want to lose weight, just restrict your calories, which we know doesn't really work for people long-term. That strategy fails over and over and over. And so to me, and I believe to you too, Tucker, it, it's just pretty blatantly obvious that there's some kind of food poison out there that's having an extra bad effect. It's not just we're eating 200 extra calories a day of carrots or 200 extra calories a day of a hamburger. We're eating right. something that is short-circuiting our brain and our physiology. Do you agree with all that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and the, que the question, of course, is what? And things like Ramonabant point a big, fat finger at a what I think is the most likely candidate for that. Now, I will note, uh, one of these studies um, that I was reading is <laughs> rather amusing. They were using sugar in the control diet, and they all... they noted that sugar also kicked off this reward circuit, although the effect was a lot less than in linoleic acid. And they kind of, you know, yeah, but sugar is generally the control in all of these obesity studies, right? That's the arm that doesn't get fat. So yes, it does. I mean, in humans, there's pretty clear evidence that like, for whatever reason, drinking sugar, sugary water really kicks off a low-grade obesity tick up. So it's, I'm not saying this is the only thing that's going on, but this does, you know, based on these models, this does seem to be the preeminent mechanism that's causing it. And if you guys have questions about sugar, uh, fruit, fructose, honey, I've done a previous controversial thoughts on that. I don't think we want to get too sidetracked and go down the sugar rabbit hole now. 
Now, if we go back, <laughs> if we go back to more of the criticism of our indictment of linoleic acid, people um, in his article, Alan pointed to the fact that if you vary the amount of linoleic acid in people's diet, arachidonic acid, which was the one mediator of quote inflammation that he wanted to focus on, doesn't, doesn't change. And I thought that you very astutely pointed out that serum levels, blood levels, acid are held quite consistent. And in your response to Alan's critique of these ideas, you pointed to a really interesting set of literature that I'd love to explore with you looking at um, CRP, so C-reactive protein levels oh. and oxidized <laughs> LDL, LP little a, as, um, as linoleic acid levels increase. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, I'll say that was almost unfair of me. Um, I mean, he obviously had no idea that this branch of the literature even existed. CRP, C-reactive protein, is this basically marker. It's used as a marker. It's also a mediator of the inflammatory response of the body, right? And CRP, without going into, you know, so CRP basically does two things. It binds to pathogens and it binds to things that look like pathogens. And one of the things that looks like a pathogen in the body is oxidized, or oxidized LDL. And oxidized LDL is by definition LDL that contains oxidized linoleic acid. And essentially what CRP is doing is marking these things for disposal, saying essential, I mean, you could look at it like a flag, right? The, body's putting a little red sticky note on these things saying, we know this is bad, get rid of it, but macrophages, you don't have to worry about figuring out what this is. We already know that it's bad, right? So I found, I went, you know, so CRP is literally a marker of oxidized linoleic acid in that context, right? And it goes up with oxidized LDL, although not always clearly, because, you know, there's a complicated inflammatory marker there. And I found this meta-analysis looking at um, linoleic acid levels and CRP. And what they found was that the constant level of linoleic acid didn't seem to matter all that much, but changes in the linoleic acid level kicked off a CRP response. And that's probably because those changes are inducing more you know, oxidized linoleic acid and an inc increased um, signal of inflammation in the body. Um, I mean, there's a whole literature on what they call sterile inflammation, right? So inflammation is always a reaction to a um, insult of some sort. It can either be in, you know, I mean, it's actually kind of funny. I did this experiment with my poor GP back in the day. I went in for my physical the day after I ran a half marathon race that I wasn't particularly well trained for. <laughs> and when he took my CRP level, it was through the roof. And Dave Feldman's done the same thing. And running a marathon is a pretty well recognized in the literature way to make your CRP level skyrocket, right? And, you know, cause you're causing damage and your body reacts to the damage in a perfectly normal way. And one of those ways is to tag all these things and say, we know what's going on here. Don't worry about it, guys, right? So sterile inflammation is that process, basically recognizing that 
there's been some sort of stress on the body and it's caused some oxidative stress and you know that the body has some repair and growth regrowth to do which is perfectly healthy or it means that you've got an infection and that's non-sterile inflammation obviously which causes a lot of the same routes you know the inflammatory inflammatory response routes to be triggered so you know what we're really interested in is sterile inflammation because that seems to be the pathway that triggers all these chronic diseases where I mean, it's literally like um, it's effectively an autoimmune disease. So if you look at what happens with, I mean, in my readings of the literature, there are three main causes of autoimmune diseases. There are known causes. There's poison ivy. We all know not to eat poison ivy. There's wheat, right? And there's seed oils. And they all do the same thing. They change proteins on the cell surface to look like they're pathogens and then the body attacks them. Um, now the wheat doesn't happen with everybody, right? It happens with celiac people and people like me who have some unrecognized malady. Um, poison ivy incidentally and ironically is more toxic the more polyunsaturated fatty acid it contains. Um, but that's a, you know, that's a, uh, essentially a toxin, a fatty toxin that's designed to have that effect. But it is dependent on the polyunsaturated fatty, fatty acid content. And then there are seed oils, which, you know, we know have this effect in the body. And there are a variety of autoimmune diseases, like something we discussed last time, antiphospholysp lipid syndrome, that are specifically looking at these oxidized fatty acids that look like pathogens to the body. So... Um, that was that, you know, yeah, there's definitely a clear route for dietary linoleic acid to kick off an inflammatory response in the body. And, you know, the CRP, which is a leading indicator that we use for measuring inflammation, detects it, pretty much puts that, oh, linoleic acid doesn't cause inflammation argument to bed, I think. And there are other pathways through which this happens. I mean, uh... Bruce uh, Hammock is looking at something called the soluble epoxy hydrolase pathway, um, which similarly is involved in this uh, sterile inflammation response. And he's had some pretty remarkable results so far. The uh, government is funding him to try and end the obesity epidemic because it turns out that by blocking this pathway of omega-6 fats being metabolized through, you can prevent, it looks like, chronic pain, which is, you know, what's caused the opioid epidemic that we've had, this epidemic of chronic, chronic pain, which it looks like may also be mediated by this seed oil intake. And I mean, that's, you know, when he told me that, it just really blew my, blew my mind. Um, he's, you know. It's amazing. So there's a billion-dollar drug there, a multi-billion-dollar drug that blocks, that will block the conversion of, of linoleic acid and its precursors into these inflammatory mediators that are involved in pain. We can talk about migraine and Chris Ramson works work. Yes. Or people could just wake up to the fact they shouldn't have this amount of linoleic acid in their diet, which just this kind of stuff drives me crazy, Tucker. Well, and you know. I mean, it's kind of like 
statins. Statins are a good idea. I mean, we know the pathway that statins are affecting, right? You eat, you eat seed oils, they make your LDL more susceptible to oxidation, which makes them kick off this inflammatory pathway in the body, and statins seem to help block that. It's not entirely clear how, but it's clear that they do make that better in some way. And, you know, Steinberg, the guy who, A, discovered that seed oils induce oxidized linoleic acid and also convinced Merck to produce statins, probably was like, probably, you know, in the back of his mind was thinking, we're never going to get people to stop eating this stuff, so what can we do to help it? And, yeah, if you're going to keep eating a crappy diet, you should probably be taking a statin. But personally, I, after seeing especially what statins did to my father, um, I have no interest in, you know, taking a poison and then taking a partially effective antidote to the poison. That just doesn't seem like a particularly good plan to me. Why not just remove the poison and then you don't need the partially toxic antidote? I mean, that's, that is Western medicine. At the risk of overly generalizing, to me, that is Western medicine in a nutshell. And at its worst. And let's, let's, you know, let's give credit where it's due if I'm, you know, if I'm in a car accident, I'm not worrying about changing my diet. I'm going to see a doctor because they are really good at lots of things, and trauma care is one of them. Chronic disease care, unfortunately, is not one of them. <laughs> yep, yep. So I pulled up a few papers that I just want people to be aware of during uh, that discussion. And if people are interested in LDL and oxidized LDL, uh, there are many other podcasts I've done on this. I would refer you guys to probably the three podcasts I've done with Dave Feldman, et cetera. But Tucker pointed to this paper in his uh, response to Alan Flanagan. And basically the interesting part of this paper is that uh, really uh, low density lipoprotein, that is LDL, corrected for LP little a cholesterol, which is a marker of oxidation. LP little a is- Well, L LP little a is a subtype of oxidized LDL. It is a very specific subtype of OxLDL, and similarly to CRP, it appears to be essentially part of the cleanup mechanism for ox, oxidized phospholipids in the body. So it like goes around, it's like a magnet for iron filings, except the iron filings are oxidized phospholipids, and it picks them up and helps the body dispose of them in an orderly way. And then that, of course, becomes a problem when there are too many of them, and you, know, you can't dispose of them fit fast enough. So yeah, and he he yeah. found that if you correct LDL for this, that LDL is no longer a problem. Whoops. <laughs> I highlighted the statement here for people who are watching on YouTube. I, I, this is this is the kind of thing that drives me crazy about LDL pontificating uh, by lipidologists and self-titled lipidologists. You know, LDLC, which is low-density lipoprotein, aka bad cholesterol, was associated with incident cardiovascular disease only when LP little a cholesterol content was included in its measurement. It's like, this is the type of thing that drives me nuts. Like LDL is involved in atherosclerosis, but only uh, as sort of a, a, an innocent bystander is perhaps the least technical way that I could say this, and that you have to correct for oxidation of the LDL and underlying insulin resistance and look at the way that the LDL is getting deposited in the subintimal layer onto proteoglycans, which appear to get more sticky when you're metabolically dysfunctional, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, people should go back and listen to the other podcasts I've done on LDL. But the basic take home is that if you look at LDL, 
in relation to cardiovascular disease incidence. On an observational level, that association changes massively depending whether you are insulin resistant, aka metabolically broken or not. People who are metabolically healthy, that is usually reflected in these studies like the Framingham study with a high HDL, HDL, good cholesterol, essentially no association between LDL levels and cardiovascular disease. The flip side, if you are metabolically broken, there's a very strong association between LDL levels and cardiovascular disease, probably because of this, because uh, let's just say that at a very 10,000 foot level, um, the, your consumption of excess linoleic acid is directly tied, in, in my opinion, and you can uh, let me know if you disagree with this, Tucker, is directly tied to your propensity to develop metabolic dysfunction. So it wouldn't be surprising that those two things would be linked. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and it, you know, and it's clear, I mean, for L LDL is probably the best example because we know exactly what is changing in the LDL particle to make it change it from a normal or native LDL, which is non-toxic and a normal part of your body into these toxic particles. And it's the omega-6 fats oxidizing, period, end of story. Um, there are other things that happen because these oxidized linoleic metabolites go on to damage proteins and, you know, they throw off a bunch of what I think are false positive flags that can confuse people. One of them, for instance, is, you know, glycation, which despite the name isn't always caused by glucose, it can be caused by these uh, lipid um, peroxidation products. So. Since you mentioned statins and endothelial function, I just want to bring in this study which we were talking about before we jumped on the podcast, and, and we may refer to it later in the podcast as well. But this is a really interesting one that I had just stumbled on um, previously. And um, basically, it's, I mean, the title says it all. A high linoleic acid diet increases oxidative stress in vivo in the body and affects nitric oxide metabolism in humans. What's so interesting for me about this study was that they took volunteers, and as we will talk about later in this podcast, one of the downfalls of many interventional trials with linoleic acid in a westernized population is that if you give people more linoleic acid, um, and they're already eating a lot of linoleic acid at baseline, are you really creating the proper uh, conditions to see the effects of linoleic acid if they are negative? So what's interesting about this one is that they did a saturated fat lead-in for four weeks, and then they switched to either linoleic acid or high oleic acid. Lo and behold, the high linoleic acid diet increased excretion of uh, oxidative stress metabolites, in this paper, 8-ISO-PGF2-alpha, and decreased the urinary concentration of nitric oxide metabolites. Well, nitric oxide is sort of important for things like, oh, I don't know, uh, vasodilatation in your heart, penis, like other parts of your body and um, uh, for overall endothelial health. And so I think that this is exactly the mechanism that we're starting to see with statins. What people might consider to be a pleiotropic effect is that there's something else going on there having to do with nitric oxide metabolism and maintenance of the ability of arteries to distend uh, with proper uh, endothelial nitric oxide synthase function. Now, you mentioned something that I had not heard of. Do you want to tell me, you want to tell us how Viagra ties into this with PGE5? Yeah, so Viagra is a drug, you know, is the brand name of this drug, Sildenafil, and there are 
the mechanism of action of sildenafil appears to be by blocking HNE metabolism in the body. And it has another interesting effect. It is consistently shown to produce about a 30% reduction in cardiovascular disease outcomes and appears to have other, all these other, I mean, in this case, you really can't even call it pleiotropic because that seems to be the main mechanism. HNE impairs nitric oxide metabolism um, and sildenafil appears to block that. Um, so, you know, I got into a little discussion with somebody and he was like, well, that's just an observational study. And I was like, okay, well, here are four other observational studies all showing the exact same reduction rate around 30% of, you know, cardiovascular disease events with people taking sildenafil. So, um, I wouldn't recommend going out and taking that one on its own just for that effect, but it does seem to have beneficial effects outside of the effects on erectile dysfunction. And, you know, again, is another finger pointing at what's causation on these pathways, right? So, and, you know, a lot of people have asked over the, about the Subotan hypothesis, which is that atherosclerosis starts in the vasovasorum, which is these network of microcapillaries around the arteries in the places where people tend to get uh, atherosclerotic lesions. And it would kind of make sense that that would be um, where this starts, because that's exactly what's happening in your penis with erectile dysfunction is the microvasculature is no longer working correctly. And we've seen in human studies, one of the first effects of taking linoleic acid is that the flexibility of the arteries and the veins goes away. And, you know, gee, that's what causes erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and the fact that that's so highly correlated with all the other chronic diseases should, you know, not surprising when you start getting into the mechanisms of why that's happening. And when, when arteries don't work well, there are correlated uh, sexual dysfunction syndromes in women. Just because women don't get erections doesn't mean that they don't need blood flow to their sexual organs. It's all sort of the same. It's not just guys that need to worry about this. Well, they do. I mean, they do get the same, a similar sort of inflammatory situation in their sexual organs that men do. It doesn't, it's obviously yeah. not quite the same thing, but it's yes. similar. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. Do you want to mention HNE? Just talk about that because we talked about that in the first podcast, but I want to make sure everybody understands what HNE is. Yeah, so HNE for hydroxynonanol, it was really, it was originally discovered in the 60s and it was, but it was really well explored in the uh, 1980s by this German scientist, Hermann Esterbauer. And it is a so basically, if you want to make HNE, you break a linoleic acid molecule in half and you add an oxygen molecule to one side. So uh, it's, you know, half the number of carbons, half the number of hydrogens and an extra oxygen. And it's made a variety of different ways in the body, either enzymatically, as we discussed, or it can be made non-enzymatically by linoleic acid self auto-oxidizing, which can happen in the mitochondria, catalyzed by iron in cytochrome C, which is part of the mitochondrial complexes that produce energy. Um, it is highly toxic. Um, it is also a normal signaling molecule. I mean, Peter at Hyperlipid has been on a charge lately talking about reactive uh, ROS, reactive oxidation species, and decoupling. HNE is one of two 
things that causes that decoupling. There's palmitic acid, and then there's HNE, which seems to be because when it is produced in the mitochondria, it's a signal that something is going wrong. <laughs> and it says, okay, guys, you know, put the clutch on, run the engine, but let's disconnect the wheels until we figure out what the heck is going on here. Um, it also is a primary, appears to be a leading cause of DNA damage as seen in cancer. There's a cancer gene, the P53 gene, which controls basically the body's response to tumors and some other things, but tumors is mainly what's interesting. That is the most common uh, DNA mutation seen in human cancers. I mean, it's at 80% of skin cancers and lesser levels of different cancers uh, below that. And that is directly induced, preferentially induced is the word they use in the literature by H&E in the body. So it damages about 24% of the proteins in the cell, primarily in the energy production system, which is of course around the mitochondria. It can break ATP synthase, which is what the body uses to produce ATP, pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is what the body uses to get um, fuel from the glycolysis process in the uh, outside the mitochondria into the mitochondria so that it can be oxidized cleanly and efficiently there. I mean, it's, it's a problem. And it's, you know, as I said, it's a normal part of your body to have a little bit in, of this in there. And it is a signaling molecule. It's a signals repair. It signals the need for angiogenesis if tissues are diseased and in a disease like AMD where you have dysregulated, uh, angiogenesis or in cancer for that matter, it seems to be part of what's kicking that process off. So it's found, you know, it induces um, beta amyloid in the brain. If you inject a little, poor little rat with HNE, it will develop beta amyloid, which is the, you know, marker protein for, for Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's seen in every single part of these chronic diseases that I've looked and there are entire journal issues dedicated to this, you know, going through all the different diseases. <laughs> oh, look here, you know. Um, so it's just, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous in these processes. It's always, period, always found in atherosclerotic plaques in every species that they look at. Um, and it's one of the things that when your macrophages go after cells, thinking that they've gone wrong, that it's, that these cells are looking for right? It's, you know, something they want to clear out. Thank you for that. Um, so I, I realize at this point in the podcast that people may not have heard our first podcast. I just want to pause for one moment and let people, can you just give us a brief explanation of where people might find this oil, linoleic acid? So we'll go very, very basic 101 here for people so they understand, like, because I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this are like, holy shit, I don't ever want this in my diet ever, but I don't even know what they're talking about. Like, where is this oil found? Um, that's, so that's, that's fair. Um, <laughs> not everybody's as much of a nerd as we are. <laughs> so linoleic acid is a normal fat that is produced in small amounts in plants, um, it, you know, like uh, lots of other fats. It's found pretty much in all foods. Um, in low amounts, um, people came up with the ability to concentrate it by industrially processing seeds like cotton seed or sunflower seed. 
Um, and in excess amounts, it appears to be a problem. And it is a problem because it overwhelms the body's antioxidant processing system, a major function of which is to deal with the toxic metabolites of linoleic acid, right? So you, you know, if you're, eat, if you're a caveman eating a paleo diet, because that's your only option, there are no supermarkets, um, you are going to have some amount of linoleic acid and it's going to, you know, it's used preferentially in your mitochondria and in your heart. And it's going to break down a little bit and produce some of these toxins. And you have an elaborate system of antioxidants like glutathione to, you know, break it down and make it harmless. The problem is when you, you know, it's just like if you have, you know, a little campfire gets out of control, it's pretty easy to put out. But if it turns into a wildfire burning the forest, you don't have enough firemen to deal with it. And one of the markers of these disease processes is a reduction in these antioxidants like glutathione because they're simply overwhelmed. So what we're talking about, you know, and this shouldn't be surprising to everybody, anything can be toxic in excess. Too much water gives you hypernatremia and can kill you if it doesn't kill you through drowning. <laughs> um, you know, which doesn't mean that water's not normal in a healthy part of a diet in the right amount. So what we're concerned about is what's the right amount and understanding and proving, because there are a lot of skeptics obviously about this, that excess is a problem in real humans living in the modern world. So if people are curious about the history of linoleic acid, about kind of connecting these dots, listen to the two podcasts I've done with Chris Kenobi, particularly the second one. Chris does a fantastic job of kind of laying out history of introduction of linoleic acid in cottonseed oil and Crisco and correlating, we can't draw causative inference here, but correlating with the massive rise in disease. So it's a very interesting sort of historical sleuthing effort that we did in that podcast with Chris Kenobi. Yeah, he does a great he does a great job with the epidemiology. I just saw him do a presentation on that the other day, and it's really quite overwhelming. He, I mean, he musters an enormous amount of, you know, granted circumstantial, but the circumstantial evidence is a very important part of proving this case, and he does a great job of that. And as I've tried hard to say in my work. Epidemiology correlation is not causation, but we can use a strong correlation to generate a hypothesis, which we will then test with interventional studies. And I want to talk about some of the interventional studies with linoleic acid in a moment, specifically Sydney Diet Heart Study, the Minnesota Coronary Experiment, and uh, maybe one other one, because there are interventional studies with linoleic acid in the diet, which have received criticism, and we'll talk about why those critiques from Allen and others may or may not be valid, and Sydney Diet Heart and Minnesota Coronary may or may not be useful studies to, to give us a sense of that. But before we move on from that, I just wanted to make sure people understand, just to, to round out the context here, Tucker, what is your sense of the average percentage of linoleic acid in the human diet as a percentage of total energy? Is it 7%? Is that the number that it's, I've heard you? The number I've heard is around 7% up to 15%. The big question there is what ought it to be? Um, and, you know, I mean, Christopher Ramsden, who we keep mentioning, because he's a core researcher in this area, he did a look back at soybean oil in the American diet and 
posited that it was, you know, maybe one to 3% of the diet a hundred years, you know, 120 years ago at the turn of the last century. Um, they've done some breast milk analysis studies looking at the TMNA in the Amazon and comparing them to Americans and their linoleic acid content is a lot lower. Bruce German, who's a, a lipid scientist and a breast milk specialist has noted that composition of breast milk is very carefully regulated by the mother's body, not surprisingly. And the one exception to that rule is linoleic acid, which appears to be passed through to just pass right through. And there doesn't seem to be a regulatory element. And, you know, he's doing research into what the health effects are on that on infants. Cause you see, you know, it's a big, big problem now is, um, babies that are too fat when they're born. Um, they can't get out. And that's part of the reason why, I mean, you know, we have such a high rate of C-sections in the United States is because we have this high rate of obesity and it, you know, passes through the mother into the infant. And if we're correct about linoleic acid being a purveyor of obesity, then the fact that the LA content of milk isn't regulated would, could explain a lot of that. And Tommy Wood, who we were both talking about and sent us a paper um, that we may get, have time to get to in this podcast, uh, does a lot of research with neonatal brain injury and has sent me a number of papers looking at linoleic acid and its metabolites and negative effects on neonatal brains when they are traumatized during the birth process. So I do not think I would be misrepresenting Tommy's position. Tommy, if you're listening to this, you can feel free to correct me if I, if I did, uh, by saying that, that he and others in neo, the neonatology world are concerned about excess linoleic acid in mother's diets being passed through um, either placental transmission, right, uh, in the blood, and then in the breast milk um, to, to, to infants and causing negative effects in the brain as well. Um, and that's another area where there's really clear evidence. I mean, I haven't looked specifically at neonatal brain injury, but I have looked at traumatic brain injury, concussion, and stroke, um, where these fats, especially in TDI, seem to play a really clear role in what happens in the brain after a concussion. I mean, these fats are so unstable that they can actually be damaged in the course of a physical impact. Um, one of the confounders when you're trying to analyze these in tissue is just homogenizing the tissue for analysis can cause these fats to oxidize. So in a traumatic brain injury, you know, you get your knock on the head and that causes some injury, but the real damage starts about 24 hours later when the uh, lipid peroxidation kicks in and you start getting these metabolites like HNE that really start doing damage to the brain. This happens in stroke. So upregulating the antioxidant levels, uh, specifically the one that I've seen studied is aldehyde dehydrogenase, um, protects the brain against these, you know, poisons that are produced in the course of this injury. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of research that I've looked at in that area that would make me think that he's, he, you know, he's clearly looking at a real phenomenon. It's not just correlation. And what we're looking at is an evolutionarily inconsistent amount of linoleic acid, which is really what we're talking about. It's impossible to avoid linoleic acid in the diet, but from what I've seen, um, grass-fed, grass-finished ruminant meat is quite low. Less than 2% of grass-fed, grass-finished fat is linoleic acid. So 
and which, to my point of view, is a great indication of what we ought to be eating. Exactly. And Chris Kenobi, um, when he's looked at indigenous populations, I hear him throw around that number 2% a lot versus 7 to 10 or 11 or 15%. Stephen Guyane has done a great paper looking at the increase in the amount of linoleic acid in the American Western diet. Uh, there's no question that it's gone way up. So this is to the previous point that, that we were making that if you see an interventional study with linoleic acid in a Western population, and that Western population has not had a lead-in with a high saturated fat diet, it's possible that you're not seeing a negative effect of linoleic acid because they're already above the threshold at which some of these negative effects start to take hold, which we don't know what that is, but it, it appears right. that it, it could be somewhere between 2 and 7% of your daily percentage of calories from linoleic acid. So that's, when people ask me, I say, you know, don't eat seed oils and, you know, and then also something that I've heard you say, which I thought was really cool because I've mentioned this as well and got a lot of pushback for it. Don't make the majority of the meat in your diet from conventionally raised pork or chicken, which are monogastric animals like humans. Monogastric animals cannot change a polyunsaturated fatty acid into a mono or saturated fatty acid, but ruminants can. So chicken and pork and humans will store polyunsaturated fatty acids. If you eat more, you will put more polyunsaturated fatty acids into the cell membranes, membranes of all of your cells in your body and your LDL, but ruminants don't do that. So, right. Well, so, they, they do to a very small effect, to a very right. small amount. I mean, that's what, you know, it's kind of interesting. If you look at what happens to a cow when you grain finish it, right, you're putting it on a concentrated load of, you know, starch, basically carb carbohydrates other than the indigestible fiber carbohydrates that they're supposed to be eating. And also they're using corn and they're using, you know, soybean isolates. They're getting them a lot more omega-6 fats. And it does shift the omega-6 balance in their tissue. And it also makes the tissues, I mean, if you go to the supermarket and you take a grain-finished piece of steak and you look at it next to a grass-fed piece of steak, the same cut, the grain, the grain-fed one is inflamed. It's bright red. And the grass-fed one is kind of a dark red, right? I mean, even there you can see it. And I mean, the whole point of grain-finishing a cow is to make it concentrate fats inside of its muscle. That's what makes it marbled. And, and, and that's what we're wondering, you know, Gee, why are all Americans getting marbled muscles? And marbled livers, right? <laughs> and marbled livers and marbled right. brains. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> well, damn, we, know, we do this in cows every day, all day long. It's not rocket science. When we feed a species inappropriate diet, yeah. That's exactly not, right. And, you, you know, you got to be careful with cows because if you feed them too much, that kills them in pretty short order. Yeah. So, okay, so I just wanted to make those points and really the, the take home from that that I want everyone to walk away with is avoid seed oils, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, peanut, etc., cetera, uh, grapeseed, all those things. Be aware, and I heard you say this on the podcast with Mark Bell, was that the number one source of linoleic acid consumption for Americans is chicken and chicken, chicken. fat. And I thought that was interesting too. So if you are going to eat chicken fat as a significant amount of your diet, it better be from a freaking wild chicken or a soy and corn-free chicken or some chicken that you know the amount of linoleic acid in their diet. Although, you know, that's actually um, those 
uh, defatted chicken breast that you see in the supermarket. It's probably the best way to go. I mean, the dark meat in chicken is where most of the fat is. So if you're going to eat chicken, you're probably... And you know what? I mean, honestly, every once in a while, I like having a chicken stir fry or something, and that's what I do. I'll get the, you know, the skinless chicken breasts and chop that up and use that, and then add some healthy fat like coconut oil to it or something or butter, or whatever. Which is mostly saturated, or butter being right. about half saturated, half mono. We can talk about that, but um, you know that that's my issue with bacon. People, I I was on an Instagram live the other day and. People were asking, what do you eat in a day? And I haven't done a, a recent video talking about what I eat in a day in like a year. And it's pretty similar to the video I did a year ago. But they said, you don't eat bacon. And I said, no, I don't eat bacon. And here's why. Because, I mean, you can go back to the podcast I've done with Brad Marshall um, and, and hear this. But, you know, if you feed a pig grains, its fat will be significantly more uh, full of linoleic acid and polyunsaturated fatty acids, above 15 to 20%, whereas yeah. a, fat, a pig fed on low linoleic acid foods or a, a wild pig is going to have about 5% linoleic acid relative to a ruminant, which is going to have less than two. So those right. are important numbers to keep in mind. I think I'm getting them. Yeah. And when I eat, I mean, when I eat a steak, I eat the whole thing. The only thing oh, yeah. left on the plate is the bone. I eat the gristle and the fat. Yeah. When I make bacon, which I do once in a while, because, you know, it is delicious <laughs> and nothing goes better with eggs. Um, I typically put the bacon on, uh, paper towels um, to absorb off the, off the fat. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I think that, that Brad is onto something, and if we could find low poof of bacon, uh, oh, yeah. that, would be, that would be a game changer because it's delicious. I was, I was able to get that for a while from a farmer who um, pastured his pigs. And yeah. not all, I mean, he never tested it, but, you know, I was just assuming it was better based on what he was feeding them. It also tastes unbelievably good like a completely different animal so if you can get and the same is true for pastured chickens which are unfortunately very expensive but if you can get either one of those um and it fits in your budget they're a wonderful addition to a diet because they are just super tasty i mean i like to refer to this refer to this way of eating as the cheating diet because you wind up eating so much better and it's so much tastier at the end of the day it's like this isn't suffering by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. pastured bacon. If you can get it or, you know, sausage made from pastured pigs, holy Toledo. It's so good. I mean, people check, check out Brad's work. There's no affiliation. He's not sponsoring this episode, but I, I like what he's doing. It's he's at fire in a bottle. And I, he did, he did have low poof of pork farm shares. And then white Oak pastures did, did corn and soy free eggs for us when, and I believe chickens too. So you can get corn and soy-free chicken, and um, it's, it's lower in linoleic acid. So that's, that's an option at White Oak Pastures. Um, so it's out there. But I just eat red meat. I eat ruminants because of whether it's lamb or beef or bison. These are all very low linoleic acid. Um, obviously, I'm eating grass-fed, grass-finished, and regeneratively raised from farms like White Oak, Belcampo, Primal Pastures, uh, here in Costa Rica. Grass-fed Costa Rica is a great farm, etc. cetera. Um, let's talk about... So go ahead. Yeah, one other note I wanted to make, um, a couple of the things that didn't come up in the debate with Alan, um, inflammation didn't come up at all. He didn't even mention that. So I presume the CRP demonstration was sufficient. Um, what was some of the other stuff? Oh, Can we talk he, about Sydney Diet Heart? 
he didn't mention that in the debate. Um, I mentioned that because he mentioned old studies and, you know, I pointed out that the data for determining the essentiality of linoleic acid, which is a topic we discussed in our last podcast, comes, you know, I mean, the dietary guidelines still consider linoleic acid to be an essential fat in the human diet. And the studies demonstrating that are 30 years old, or I'm sorry, from the 1930s, so they're 90 years old. So he mentions, oh, these old studies, you know, like studies have, you know, like a piece of beef on the counter, they have some sort of expiration date. That's ridiculous. I mean, a study may not have been conducted well, but there are plenty of studies that came out last week that weren't conducted well. And there are lots of studies, especially when you're looking at fundamental mechanisms that were done a long time ago and nobody redoes them because everybody says no this was this was shown here boom and we're not going to keep redoing it every week just to you know so phd grad students who aren't allowed to cite anything older than three or five years can find evidence for it so claiming a study that claiming a study is old and for that reason you shouldn't look at it is pretty much prima facie evidence of a really bad argument in my point of view, unless you have a good reason attached to that, like, you know, it's old and they didn't have the appropriate testing procedure back then to determine this mechanism, which is definitely the case often. Um, but yeah, that on, but he didn't really get into that. He didn't get into the Minnesota coronary experiment. I mean, his article was rather hilarious because he went, on and on and on about anybody who criticized Ansel Keys was a lunatic and what wonderful research Ansel Keys did. And then he comes along to the, to the Minnesota coronary experiment and he talks about what a crappy study it was and how you can't use it for anything and blah, blah, blah. Apparently he wasn't aware that that study was also conducted by Ansel Keys, who is the co-principal investigator on it. <laughs> but not on the paper. No, Ansel Keys has a really funny apparent, so he tested his ideas in two, two basically two big studies. Um, the Minnesota coronary experiment was a subset of a larger trial study called the National, oh God, I can't remember what it's called right now, but it's in my rebuttal to uh, Flanagan, but it was basically a subset of this big study that was testing Keyes' hypothesis all over the country. And the other one that he did was the seven country study, of course, and both of them published their final report without his signature on it. And both of them refuted his hypothesis. Oops. Um, I mean, the final report here, I've got it. Uh, I can get it up in a second here. The final report of the seven, uh, seven countries study, just give me a sec here, came out uh, quite a while after, oops, quite a while. Can you hear me? Are you still there? Oh, okay. Um, Actually, this isn't coming up quickly, so I'm not going to waste our time doing it. But basically, they said that it's unlikely that we're going to fix this problem um, just by altering fats in the diet. Well, gee, that was kind of the whole point of it, or just by altering uh, 
saturated fat, and the main confounder that they discovered was the Japanese population. And of course, the Japanese don't eat a lot of seed oils, or at least they didn't back when that study was going on. So, and then of course, along comes the, the Minnesota coronary experiment, where they discovered that more people in the intervention wing were doing poorly than in the um, than in the control wing, and they kind of buried that data. The only data we have, the only summary we have of that data was a uh, master's thesis that somebody did with it, and you know, Ramsden discussed that and discussed the lack of data. They had to go back, you know, decades later and try and figure out what had happened. Um, so both of the studies, you know, both of the final reports that explain that his hypotheses had basically been refuted, he didn't sign. Um, and his fans don't seem to mention that. And in some cases, like Alan, don't even seem to be aware that uh, he was the principal investigator on that study. Yeah. So let's talk about Minnesota coronary and the criticisms of it and uh, Chris Ramsden and the cool work that he's done there. I mean, you detail this in your, um, in your rebuttal to Alan, but this is pretty fascinating that, uh, uh, that um, wasn't it France? This guy, Robert P. France, is the son or the grandson of the original Minnesota coronary experiment and co-investigator with Ansel Keys. And then yes. Chris Ramsden somehow connected with him and went down into Robert P. France's basement, the grandson well, of the... the father was Ivan France, okay. and he was, I think, one of the, you know, in his obituary, they mentioned that he was one of the top recipients of NIH funding. So he was one of the top scientists in the country at the time. And he was Keyes' colleague in Minnesota and... They were co-principal investigators of this study, which was designed to be the most rigorous part of this larger nationwide study that was being done. And Robert France is a MD at the Cleveland Clinic, so no slouch himself, right? That's one of the best clinics in the world. Um, he hadn't gone through his father's basement yet. It was still, you know, they kept the house and his dad kept everything or almost everything. and. Somehow Ramsden got in touch with him and said, you know, and, you know, the son thought his father would want to see this research see the light of day. So he worked with Ramsden and was a co-author on this re-examination, um, along with the guy who published that master's thesis that showed it was harmful, um, bringing these result, results to, uh, to light. Um, you know, and then, I mean... And that's one of the more annoying things about, honestly, Flanagan's um, criticism of this study is that, you know, he's, he's not speaking kindly about Keyes or Franz or Robert Franz, who's trying to bring this research to light, you know, or Christopher Ramsden. Flanagan has this whole section um, talking about lipid peroxidation and how it's really nothing to worry about, well, Christopher Ramsden is the now the head of the lipid peroxidation, the newly created lipid peroxidation section of the National Institutes of Health. <laughs> Seem to think it's enough of a project to have a lab, or enough of a problem to have a lab dedicated to studying it. 
And of course, he's currently in the middle of doing a, um, you know, investigation into migraines, and he's found that, you know, lowering linoleic acid reduces the incidence of migraines more effectively than the drugs that are currently used, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, migraine is, by the way, an inflammatory disease, so yet another indication that linoleic acid can directly lead to inflammatory diseases in the human body and that reducing it improves them because, you know, Ramston's got, I think, three papers out now in the course of that project showing that, um, you know, so I don't know. There was, you know, you can go through my rebuttal. I honestly hate doing this sort of thing. There was so much wrong with Flanagan's, I can't even call it an analysis. It was kind of a lack of analysis. It was just a lot of cherry picking and bad logic, um, you know, so anyway. But I will give, you know, to give credit where it's due, he was, uh, he did come on and do this debate with me, and it was a very nice cordial debate, and I think, you know, he is doing some interesting work around circadian rhythms, you know, which we discussed at the end of that podcast. It was quite funny, because when he described a night owl and eating patterns, I was like, oh, crap, that's me. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, this, yeah. Oh, I just yes. want to point this out, that, that the main criticism of the Minnesota coronary experiment has been that they were inpatient and outpatients. But as you point out, the Minnesota coronary experiment was probably one of the best studies that have, I mean, you could make an argument that it, it's a very to this well done study. ever been done. Ever yes. been done, that nothing like this will ever be repeated. And as Chris Ramson points out, importantly, 2,355 Minnesota coronary experiment participants were exposed to the Minnesota coronary experiment diet for greater than one year. The original investigators emphasized this subsample, which alone is much larger than any other RCT testing the effects of replacing saturated fat with linoleic acid. And so just in case people are not familiar with what the Minnesota coronary experiment intervention was, these were inpatients uh, at a number of hospitals. I believe they were mental health hospitals. Yes. Um, and they were, they were basically given, if I remember this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, they were given like beef patties that had either saturated fat or linoleic acid in them. So it was a blinded experiment. People did not know that they were getting a high saturated fat. Well, they fat. went, I mean, just, you know, one of the, um, somebody did a podcast, which I mentioned in this, I think I mentioned in this article. Um, anyway, and he talked about the lengths, he interviewed Robert France and talked about, you know, the whole process of finding the podcast was titled uh, The Basement Tapes. And you know, he pointed out that the law in Minnesota at the time was that margarine had to be served at the table in triangles, right? Butter could be served in squares. And um, yeah, this was Malcolm Gladwell from, uh, I think, this year, as a matter of fact. Um, and he pointed out that Franz was so diligent that he actually went to the Minnesota legislature and had them change the law so that he could serve square pieces of margarine at the breakfast table so that they wouldn't know that they were being served margarine because that was an obvious tell that would cancel the blinding that he was trying to accomplish. So he went to, you know, some might argue ridiculous measures to get this done, but I mean, you know, that indicates how much how much how serious he was taking this 
And Robert France in that podcast talks about how, you know, his dad was a true believer. He really, you know, had his kids eating margarine in a low-fat diet because he really thought that, you know, this was the way to eat. And then he runs this study that showed the reverse. And just so everybody understands, the results of the Minnesota coronary experiment were that the people that had more linoleic acid had more cardiovascular events despite having lower LDLs. Am I correct with that statement, Tucker? Yes. I mean, one and, of the things that it, yeah. linoleic acid does pretty consistently, not all the time, but is it lowers LDL. And I, I, you can yeah. have low LDL and a higher risk of a heart attack. Exactly. Because as I've shown <laughs> multiple times, I don't have the paper at my fingertips at this moment, but there is another interventional study that has been done where they decrease the amount of saturated fat in people's diet in the amount of linoleic acid, and they see lower LDL with more oxidized LDL and more LP little a, as we talked about earlier. So you can have lower absolute levels of low-density lipoprotein with more oxidation and presumably more endothelial dysfunction underlying this due to the mechanisms that we talked about earlier. Your, your yep. characterization of Sydney diet heart I thought was fascinating. Let's talk about this one. Um, before we wrap this up. So, because there's a big critique of Sydney Diet Heart that, um, that this study used margarine um, and that, that some of the uh, effects of the uh, linoleic acid, which appears to also be negative in this study, could have been due to trans fats in the margarine in the study. But you had a really interesting analysis of this. Can you tell us about that? Well, I wish I could take credit for that analysis. That was uh, Christopher Ramsden's analysis okay. in a back and forth published after that paper came out. Um, I think it was Frank Willett who is partners with, or Walter Willett who is pa partners with Frank Hu up at the Harvard uh, Chan School of Public Health. Um, and he said, oh, you know, they were eating lots of trans fats and we know those are harmful. One of Willett's works was to, you know, popularize Frank Kummerow's research on the, you know, to produce epidemiology demonstrating that Frank or Fred Kummerow's warnings about uh, trans fats were valid. And Ramsden's response was that trans fats have the opposite effect on LDL that linoleic acid does. Trans fats make LDL go up because they're you know, generally associated with a lot of saturated fats. I mean, that's the whole process of hydrogenation is to turn polyunsaturated fats into saturated fats. And in the process, you get some partially hydrogenated fats, which are these trans fats, which, you know, the synthetic ones can be harmful. So the fact that the LDL went down in the intervention arm and in the control arm, I believe, was an indication that they were you know, a mechanistic demonstration that they were not using excess trans fats because if they had been, then their LDL would have gone up. And apparently, although they weren't aware of all the mechanisms, they were aware of that one and they were quite careful to pick margarines that had PUFA in it because that's what they were trying to test. And, you know, unfortunately, we can't go back you know, I mean, Alan in his rebuttal says, oh, here's a paper looking at, you know, all these margarines and they're mostly trans fats, which was nice. It was from the same period of time as Sydney Diet Heart took place, but it was looking at margarines in the market in Ohio, I think, in Boston, not in Australia. So it kind of misses the whole point that we don't, 
unfortunately know exactly what they were feeding these people down there, but we do have a clear marker that demonstrates what they were feeding them, and it wasn't heavy in trans fats, or their LDL would have gone up. I just thought that was so cool because that, that I mean, we have between Sydney Diet Heart and Minnesota Coronary, we have two interventional studies done in the and late the 60s. Corn oil study, let's not yes, forget that one, oil, which there's much less controversy about. And we haven't even talked about Diet Leon, which I want to talk on, touch on briefly. Um, we have interventional trials where we have done more saturated fat versus more linoleic acid. And in these interventional trials, linoleic acid looks much worse. And so, of course, the proponents of linoleic acid or those who don't think the evidence is robust try to say this is what's wrong with the studies and this is our counter to that to say actually these studies are pretty decent and these results look to be pretty accurate and should give us some indication that all of this mechanistic stuff that we were talking about earlier is actually playing out in humans when they consume this evolutionarily inconsistent level of uh, linoleic acid. Do you want to talk about diet Leon real quick and then I want to make sure we get to Omegaven. Omegaven, okay. The Leon diet heart study was a study that was released in the first paper came out in 1994, then another paper came out in 1991, or 1999, at which point the American Heart Association started running around screaming in circles with their hands in the air. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. So this was a multi-factorial study intervention, and one of the explicit points of this study was to reduce the linoleic acid in the diet and in the 1994 paper, they go through the reasons for that in depth. Um, and this is, to this day, I believe, the most successful cardiovascular disease risk reduction study. They were looking at people who'd already had a heart attack, so they had established cardiovascular disease. And the intervention arm had 70% lower subsequent cardiovascular disease uh, incidence than the control arm. Now, the reason this caused the AHA to run around in circles with their hands in the air is the control study used was the AHA prudent diet as prescribed by the dietitians and the doctors in France where this study was conducted, Lyon, obviously. Um, the first paper was published, I think, in The Lancet. Maybe, I may be mistaken about that, but it was in a, Euro a European paper. The second paper was studied in or was published in circulation which is published by the AHA and they changed the mention of the control diet <laughs> so that they weren't pointing out that it was the AHA prudent diet that was causing this heart, pretty high heart disease rate in these folks um, they dropped most of the discussion about linoleic acid the AHA came out with a revision of their dietary guidelines because of this paper and came out with a scientific analysis of it the following year in which they only discussed the 1999 paper. They completely ignore the 1994 paper which explained a lot of the rationale for the intervention and for lowering linoleic acid. Now they used rapeseed um, and they used it because it had more omega-3 fats but they also used it because it had less linoleic acid. They got them down to about a 3.6% rate of linoleic acid, which you know you and I would probably agree isn't optimal, but it's a lot less than anything else that we see. And it's probably on the high end of an evolutionarily appropriate 
intake. Um, and it is, you know, I mean, Ansel Keys wrote a couple of books pushing the Mediterranean diet, and it didn't really take off until this paper came out and showed that it was, well, but here's the problem. So Ansel Keys argued for something called the polyunsaturated saturated ratio in the diet. PS ratio, and he thought it should be high, that you should have lots of polyunsaturates and low saturates. And Delorgerol in this group argued that it should be low. So the intervention was another refutation of Keyes's body of work, even though they've both been stuffed under the same Mediterranean diet tent. They were actually two different interventions. And this study kind of refuted Keyes's argument that, you know, third time here, sort of refuted Keyes' argument that the uh, a high polyunsaturated, low saturated fatty acid diet would be beneficial because, of course, that was the AHA prudent diet. And the AHA, while, you know, trying not to discuss linoleic acid, they mentioned, I think, briefly that that was part of the intervention. But their conclusion was you need more oleic acid in the diet. And they didn't talk at all about lowering linoleic acid in the diet. And they're still to this day pushing seed oils as being quote unquote heart healthy. So because this is, you know, if you want a fine example of yeah. anti-science, <laughs> their reaction to this study, and I mean, they still, you know, they're, hey, the AHA stuff, I mean, I could go through their presidential advisory that came out a couple of years ago, which was just literally flat misrepresenting papers that they cited to justify ignoring some of these studies showing harm from linoleic acid. It's just, it's pretty despicable in my opinion. And I think that they must, I love where linoleic acid discussion goes because all roads end in LDL in my opinion. And that the AHA continues to advocate for seed oils because they lower LDL. And don't you know, Tucker, uh, everyone knows that uh, lower LDL is better, and that the higher. Anyway, this is the this is the great LDL fallacy that that I continue to have many. Well, one of the more one of the more amusing papers that's come out was looking at the paradoxical increase in oxidized LDL and LP little a, I think, in a low fat, high carbohydrate diet, which is basically, of course, what the AHA pushes. And as the evidence keeps piling up that the important thing is, you know, oxidized LDL in the form of LP little a and not LDL, it becomes, you know, more and more indefensible for them to not address this, right? We know this pathway. It's, we've known since, you know, the 70s that LDL doesn't kick off atherosclerosis. Okay, we are back. We had a little okay. internet snafu we were in the midst of uh, tucker talking about the aha and the aha diet and the diet leon study so we'll just we'll let you take off wherever you think we landed tucker well so i used our little break to uh find in my database the final report of the several seven countries study which I'd, we, as we'd mentioned ansel keys didn't sign um so what did they say um it appears that reductions in serum total cholesterol levels are not likely to bring cultures with a high coronary heart disease risk, such as the United States and Northern Europe, back to a CHD mortality level 
characteristic for the Mediterranean Japanese cultures unless other factors are also changed. Mediterranean and Japanese diets, low in saturated fat and rich in antioxidants, may have beneficial effects both on the oxidizability of LDL particles and on thrombogenesis, which also seems to depend on omega-6 fats, just as an aside, apart from an effect on LDL levels per se. This stresses the importance of factors other than serum cholesterol, blood pressure, and smoking status, such as diet and CHD prevention. Well, gosh darn, folks, we know what causes the oxidizability of LDL particles, and it's good to know that Ansel Keys' research project is on board now twice. <laughs> and it's not the saturated fat. I love that they sort of hint at the saturated fat there. Like, maybe it's the saturated, it's the low saturated fat in the Japanese diet that causes their, them to have less cardiovascular risk. Wrong. Maybe yeah, well, to... to to paraphrase Bill Lands, who's been re who you know is retired now, and I think he's in his 90s or something, but he's one of the leading researchers in lipids in the second half of the 20th century. And you know, you still read papers where they talk about the Lands equation and figuring out what percentage of membrane phospholipids contain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And his comment was, in 50 years, I've been unable to identify a mechanism by which saturated fat kills people. It doesn't exist. And why would it? You know, it's prevalent in animal fats. for millions of years. Exactly. Exactly. It's what we've been eating for millions of years. And while we're talking about this, just so people know, if you're interested, if you want to check the amount of oxidized phospholipids in your LDL, an ox-LDL test is not a very good blood work. You want to get oxidized phospholipids on ApoB through Boston Heart. Um, but the OX-LDL test is generally inaccurate. I've talked about that with Dave Feldman in the past, but there is a test from Boston Heart where you can do oxidized phospholipids on ApoB, which appears to be more of an, uh, an analog uh, assessment or a, a linear assessment of the burden of oxidized phospholipids rather than a Boolean on-off assessment of any oxidized phospholipids on the LDL particle. Just a technical aside there for people. If you're yeah, and it's an important aside. There's also a Mercodia test that doesn't seem to distinguish between ox-LDL and LDL. Oops. <laughs> so. That's a problem. Yeah. And yeah. the problem is that, the problem that Tucker and I are alluding to here is that if you have more LDL, which you generally will, not always, but the majority of humans that I've seen, not all humans, but genetically there seems to be some nuance that most humans, when they eat more saturated fat and less polyunsaturated fat, have a, an LDL that goes up. And some of us have an LDL that goes above 200, which is the, the red alarm bells in every physician's office, even when we have low triglycerides, high HDL, low fasting insulin, and low HSCRP, but still our physicians insist that we must go on a statin, lest this, this valuable lipoprotein particle kill us dead uh, instantly. And then they, if you get an oxidized LDL and your LDL is high, it is really just a proxy for an elevated LDL, which we know is not a good marker of uh, cardiovascular disease risk unless you account for uh, the oxidizability of it, like we talked about with the earlier paper when they looked at LP little a. So, um, and as the seven countries study concluded, Yes. That's the important factor. So That's crazy. who are we to doubt? <laughs> who are we to doubt the work of Ansel Keys, right? I mean, look, he's given us the Minnesota coronary experiment and the seven country studies. Maybe he wasn't such a bad guy after all. There you go. 
Um, tell us about Omega then, uh, Tucker, because I wasn't aware of this, but you mentioned it on the debate with Alan. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, and contrast that, obviously, with intralipid. So intralipid, um, I went over this uh, a little bit in the AHS talk I gave over the weekend. So when that comes out, folks should look for it, AHS 21. Um, so intralipid was invented in 1961 as a TPN solution. T TPN is total parenteral nutrition. I mean, there are situations where people can't eat and they need to be fed, right, in, in a hospital. Uh, you know, it could be from a car accident, you know, you're in a coma for six months, they can't not feed you. Um, or if you're a kid who's born with what's known as short gut syndrome, where you don't have enough of a small intestine to absorb nutrients, they have to do something. So they feed you through a vein. And since 1961, they've been using this intralipid, which is basically, you know, some sugar, like I think dextrose or glucose is what they use, and soybean oil and an emulsifier so that it doesn't Anyway, um, we won't get into the emulsifier thing, although it's kind of an interesting story. Um, anyway, so uh, in 1964, they noticed, or they wrote a paper noticing that intralipid causes uh, insulin resistance and hyper hyperglycemia, okay? 1964. So in 2014, I came across a paper where they mentioned that intralipid is a uh, established model to induce insulin resistance in humans. And then a little while ago, I listened to a Peter Atia podcast, uh, this guy, Gerald or Gerard Shulman, uh, the podcast was titled a masterclass on insulin resistance. And I'd never heard of this fellow before, but I mean, I'd seen the papers looking at intralipid and TPN, where it was well known to induce insulin re resistance and hyperglycemia. And then Peter Atia has this guy come on and what does he use to induce insulin resistance in humans in his models? Intralipid. <laughs> um, so intralipid's really bad for you and it actually is required to be sold by the FDA with a black box warning, which is their highest warning, which basically says this product may be beneficial, but it can also kill you. Um, and the mechanism by which it kills you is causing your liver to die. And one of the major reasons, you know, these people often wind up needing a liver transplant, which is when you're an infant is pretty horrible. And lots of these infants with short gut syndrome wind up dying from intralipid and you know, if you know, if in the course of my uh, coronavirus investigation into what causes ARDS, um, the guidelines for intralipid use for TPN note that it's so harmful, but they say we don't have any alternative. So, you know, this is what you have to use. So it kills your liver. That's not great. It makes you insulin resistant and it makes you hyperglycemic and it's an established model to induce those situations in humans. Well, so they've been looking for an alternative but since it's so bad. One of the alternatives they came up with is known as clinolaic. Um, clinolaic is an olive oil based infusion, much less omega-6, and it doesn't induce the hyperglycemia in infants that intralipid does. So that's a plus. But there's a 
pharmacist up at the Boston Children's Hospital, which has been doing, you know, these dealing with these short gut infants for decades. And they got a kid who came in who was allergic to soy, so they couldn't use intralipid. Um, so she had heard about a fish oil infusion that what that came out of Germany for Senius, I think was the company, but they didn't use it for TPN and it wasn't authorized by the FDA to be used for TPN. So she got an FDA authorization and it should be noted. And she just wrote a great last year overview of her experience with this process that the FDA really went to the mat to get this product through and get it into the hands of people who needed it. Um, you know, just, I always like to give credit where it's due. Um, so it turns out that if you take a kid whose liver is half dead from soybean oil and you put them on Omega Ven, it heals. Problem is, if you mix in even a little bit of soybean oil, it doesn't heal. Um, this is, in my view, the most clear demonstration that these omega-6 fats are harmful and most likely the underlying cause. I mean, you know, just backstory for the listeners, if you haven't listened to the previous podcast, soybean oils are like 70% of the fats in the American diet now and are the single biggest change in the American diet and the world diet over the last 120 years. You know, so over this period where we have, and, and they're described in some articles in the literature as the obesogenic soybean oil. So over the last hundred years, hundred odd years in which we've had epidemics of diabetes and insulin resistance and obesity, we have this fat that's been fed to humans that causes insulin resistance and obesity and oh yeah, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is another epidemic we're dealing with. And this is the ex established scientific model for inducing these situations in humans. And nobody can figure out what's causing the obesity epidemic or the diabetes epidemic. I mean, how bloody hard is this, right? Now, it doesn't happen so fast. There's a big difference between injecting something and eating it, right? So it doesn't happen nearly the same way. When you eat it, your body has all sorts of uh, protective mechanisms, including, of course, your liver, to prevent this from happening in humans. But there is evidence that the same process happens in people. If you, you know, um, Ox LDL happens before insulin, insulin resistance does. It's highly associated with it. And insulin resistance, of course, happens, you know, years before type 2 diabetes becomes evident and is obviously highly associated with it. So they took these, uh, they had this model. They were trying to treat atherosclerosis by injecting these rhesus monkeys with um, antibodies to Ox LDL. And it didn't work for atherosclerosis but it did fix their insulin resistance, which is rather surprising. So then there are a couple of studies that are looking at lowering omega-6 fat in the diet and what it does to insulin resistance, and it seems to improve it even on the background of a high-carb diet. And all three diets that I saw used a 55 to 75% carbohydrate diet as the background. And the neatest one coming out of India used a background fat, the normal fat in the diet, which was like safflower oil. And then they used canola oil, rapeseed oil, and then they used olive oil. And they had a clear dose response pattern where the less omega-6 in the body, the more the insulin resistance resolved. So. Wow. 
That's pretty interesting. Yeah, maybe you can send me that one. We'll put it in the show notes because I wasn't aware of that paper, but that would be It's on. Uh, it's on my blog. Um, there's another post show notes for the Ancestral Health Symposium from okay. last week. We'll find it. We'll find it. Um, while I'm looking for that, Tucker, tell us about your story. I don't think, I don't know if we got into this so much in the first podcast. If, if we did, then we'll repeat it a little bit. But you had a pretty profound personal story of uh, weight loss and then some tanning stuff that happened for you when you changed your diet. So tell us a little bit about that as we start to wrap up. Yeah, so I honestly never had an interest in this freaking diet stuff. Um, my mother had a weight problem when I was growing up and was on Weight Watchers for years. So I got to see, you know, what roller coaster dieting looks first looks like firsthand. Um, and I just, you know, I assumed that the dietary guidelines, that there were smart people who'd come up with all these, you know, recommendations and you know, the only thing I didn't really buy into was the anti-saturated fat thing because I was, you know, an evolution nerd as a kid. So I knew that we'd been eating saturated fat forever. So I never bought into that part of it. But I bought, but, you know, in practice, if you're eating and you're eating out a lot and you're eating, you know, unless you make an effort, you're eating the dietary guidelines. Um, it's pretty hard to find full fat yogurt nowadays. I mean, you know, 98% of the yogurt aisle is fat free or 1% fat yogurt with sugar in its place. Um, so anyway, in my late thirties, I had a bunch of health issues. I was hospitalized a number of times for these like weird things like vomiting blood, um, which I don't recommend anybody do. And finally I came down with what they thought was a stroke when I was 38 years old. And then Two years after that, I came down with acute diverticulitis, which is a perforated colon. Let me tell you, that's the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and if you don't know, folks, a perforated colon can kill you in pretty short order if you don't get to the hospital. So it's quite a serious situation. Um, and they told me, you know, the surgeon said, oh, well, no fatty fried foods for you. Fried in what, one might ask, by the way. But anyway, um, <laughs> It's not tallow. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I said to him, what are you talking about, Doc? I can't eat that stuff. I haven't been able to eat that stuff for decades. And he just shrugged and said, you know, well, we think fiber is good for it. So at the time, I was referring to myself to my daughters as Mr. Whole Wheat. So, you know, over the six months in between my initial attack and finally having to get a colon resection, you know, which is when they go in and cut out your sigmoid colon, eight inches of your colon, uh, where most of the damage happens in diverticulitis. You know, I tried to eat more fiber and that was, you know, whole wheat bread and salads with salad dressings. And I kept getting worse. And, you know, so finally had to have the surgery and kept having symptoms. It was not, as they told me, curative. Um, a couple of years later, I ran across Stefan Guillenet's blog and he was going on about the problems of wheat, which I thought was nuts, and the problems of seed oils, which he started off, you know, by talking about the effect on sunburn, which I thought was interesting because, you know, as you, you know, for the podcast listeners, I'm blonde, blue-eyed, fair-skinned, and I used to roast in 45 minutes, so, um, 
you know, I went through all the studies that he cited and read the studies. And after a few months, I was like standing at the end of the salad bar at the office cafeteria and looking at these squeeze bottles of salad dressing and thinking, okay, this has got to be the worst crap <laughs> available on the market to make it in this place. What happens if I stop eating them? And at that point, I'd been sick with inflammatory bowel disease, which led to the diverticulitis for about 16 years, and which meant chronic diarrhea. So I had a really good marker for this problem. And my IDD went away in two days. Um, and I was just blown away by this. Um, so I, you know, started, uh, <clears throat> so I pursued this because I felt so much better. I noticed that I forgot to eat carbs. Um, one of the things that I forgot to mention about Ramona Bant is that uh, you get a carbohydrate craving. So I tried a low carb diet and never been able to get over the carbohydrate cravings. And what happened was I just forgot to eat carbs for a week. And at the end of the following week, I had a sandwich on whole wheat bread and I had a horrible reaction to it. Then I started going into experimental mode and intentionally went off wheat for another week and then ate a pizza and, you know, was literally, th I was thinking I was having a heart attack. My heart was pounding. I had to lie on the sofa at the office for a half an hour while things calmed down. Um, and remarkably, all of everything started getting better. I started losing weight. Um, you know, I was not obese or not, you know, super overweight. I was like 20 pounds overweight and it just fell off. And I discovered that I was able to go out in the sun and um, stand next to my ex-wife who had dark skin and she burned and I didn't. And this kind of blew the both of us away. And, you know, I mean, it's been, that was... 10 years ago, and I think I've used sunscreen once when I was in the Alps. Um, and I mean, now I live in the high desert in Idaho, and I go out all day, and, you know, I've gone from burning in 45 minutes to burning in six or seven hours, and even when I do burn, you know, it's a little bit of skin peeling, it's not a big deal, and there's hardly any pain, and it's just a completely different experience from the sheets of skin that used to come off. And for that, there's clear, you know, the standard, the standard model for inducing skin damage in rodents depends on how much polyunsaturated fat they put in the rodent's diet, which is what the paper that Stefan had put on his blog showed. And it's one of the things, as Paul will, I'm sure, testify, lots of people in the carnivore community comment on why am I not burning in the sun anymore? And it seems to be, you know, meat has this wonderful property of A, not having much omega-6, well, beef at least, not having much omega-6 fatty acids, and also having this thing called carnosine. So carnosine is the most effective antioxidant known against HNE. So if you are on a beef diet, you are getting the double whammy of good things. You are not eating omega-6, and you are getting the best thing that we know of to mop up any residual damage from HNE, and it's that's an important thing to note because it takes, you know, like your skin where there's a very high cell turnover. You know, I noticed an improvement in my burning in weeks. Um, adipose tissue takes years to clean out linoleic acid, so doing something 
like eating a lot of beef where you're going to be getting a lot of carnosine is probably a beneficial way to deal with that linoleic, stored linoleic acid that is going to be released over the next couple of years, regardless of what you do. And I mean, that I think in conjunction with doing a lot of fasted cardiovascular exercise where you're going to be burning large quantities of stored fat off is the best way to deal with that particular problem. So that was, you know, and I mean, at this point, it's been 10 years. Um, I'm not on any drugs. I don't need any drugs. I fired my doctor after he told me I was that everything I had done had increased my health to the point where I was going to live to 100. I've I had to go to the dentist once because I had a bit of calcium break off and go in my gum and get a little inflamed and I had to go get some antibiotics because I got bit by some nasty tick <laughs> that gave me some nasty tick-borne disease, but that's my two interactions with the healthcare. Uh, I mean, and I was in, you know, I was in the, I was paying for, uh, I was paying a lot for this doctor. I was on a concierge model because I needed the doctor so much. And, you know, I was going in there all the time with heart palpitations and inflammatory reactions to various, the drugs that I was on for my sinus infections and, you know, Everything has gone away, everything. And I mean, you know, I feel healthier now than I have in my entire life. And just even, you know, so I moved out here to Idaho at the end of the last year and it's a rather long story, but I was living in a fourth floor walk up and, you know, I figured I was gonna pull something or get a sore back or something in the course of moving out of there because I moved most of this stuff out for my now wife and myself myself, you know, up and down the stairs and nothing, no soreness, no muscle soreness, just steadily getting stronger as I was doing more work, no pulled muscles, no back pain, nothing. And I couldn't believe it. No, you know, I used to be super allergic to dust, no allergic to reactions to the dust that one invariably stirs up when you're moving. I mean, you know, it's, if I hadn't experienced it myself, I never would have believed it. It's really just been astonishing. And it sounds like you attribute this this these massive improvements in health to it sounds like stopping wheat yeah turned out, out it turns out i am super gluten intolerant okay. i mean yeah. the stroke-like symptoms were largely the result of that but the irritable bowel syndrome was a mix of the two i can reproduce you know the two of them together produce the combination of symptoms that i always had and if i make a mistake and have one or the other i get to enjoy one of the other sets of symptoms that led up to me being so sick. And, you know, diverticulitis is another one of these diseases that, you know, it's well demonstrated in the medical literature that, you know, non-industrial populations just don't get, right? And now it gets up to 80% of the population in, their, in our 80s, right? I was lucky. I got it. I mean, so there I am with a perforated colon lying in the hospital, you know, with my phone, Googling, trying to figure out what's going on with this thing. And they say, it's generally a disease of old people. It may appear in people after 40 years of age. And I'm like, damn it. It was literally two weeks past my 40th birthday. <laughs> and here I am in agony. But it had actually started in my 20s. I just hadn't recognized the symptoms. You would think that bleeding out your rectum would be a pretty notable symptom, but uh, I hadn't quite put, connected the dots until that started happening again in the hospital. 
Well, I think that this is why we do the work that we do, because your physician did not tell you about this. This was sort of your own connecting the dots and, you know, various, you know, free resources, blogs that you were reading. And this is my constant frustration is that mainstream Western medicine hasn't quite realized this. And that's why I think that putting this information out there on platforms like this is super valuable to people. I'm sure the first podcast we did helped a lot of people. I know this one will help a lot of people. I want to end with this study, which I'll put up there which is one of the ones that you had in your show notes from the debate on Mark Bell's Power Project. And I thought this one was so cool. I'd never heard you mention this one, but it's the health characteristics of the Waiyu yes. indigenous people. And it relates to what you were talking about. So tell us about this and then we'll wrap this up for people. Yeah, let me just, let me pull up my notes on this study. Um, uh, ba -ba -ba. Okay, although the Waiyu live in an arid desert in the Andes with chronic sun exposure. They have no apparent affliction from squamous cell carcinoma or melanoma. And of course they eat a typical poor person's diet, high in carbs, low in animal protein and fat. No skin disease, no skin cancer. And that was from, I believe the study was done by the military. Yeah. Although I may be, yeah, it's in the journal Military Medicine. Yeah. So, you know, this is, there's an enormous amount of, I mean, in the debate, um, Alan Flanagan used, you know, oh, well, the weight of the evidence says, and I said, well, wait a minute, you just told me that you weren't familiar with this entire body of evidence around ditrolipid at that point in the conversation. So you can't talk about the weight of the evidence because you don't know what the evidence is. And that's been my biggest frustration and my mission is to bring this evidence out and make other scientists aware of it and medical professionals aware of it because you know the evidence for this in the scientific literature you know I'm you know I had a personal experience that made me aware of this and then I went out and tried to understand what was happening but the evidence for this in the scientific literature is in my view overwhelming and there's some areas where, you know, like cardiovascular disease, where it's all there and there's no other explanation, but you still have guys who are like pointing the figure at LDL, which was shown not to be causative, oh, in the 60s? <laughs> but they're literally just not aware of the evidence. And that may be because they have some financial interest that points them away from that um, or... Often I find with scientists, even well-intentioned ones, that, you know, scientists are so siloed in their little area that they may not be aware of something that leads to the area that they're studying, right? Or is literally the guy in the office right next door is studying that bears on their topic. I mean, I did a interview, uh, a podcast interview with Bruce Hammack and Bruce German who were both studying this stuff and, you know, Hammock had German on because he's the expert in the field. And those, that's a rare example of two guys who were working together. You know, Hammock is the guy who's doing this um, study on um, how to deal with our epidemic of chronic pain through blo blocking metabolism of omega-6 fats. And German is the guy who's studying omega-6 fats in uh, mother's milk and looking at the harmful effects of it. And, you know, there are some really good, um, uh, cases of people working together like that, but even some of the stuff, 
you know, I talked to German and he said, what we need to know is what causes hyperphagia. And I was like, well, <laughs> I may have an idea. <laughs> but even a guy who's been studying this for his whole career wasn't aware of this line of evidence. So part of what I try to do is just to, you know, help people, you know, get the news, get the word out to folks like you, your audience, audience, but also to help people connect the dots by studies like that YU study where you're just like, wait a minute. Sun doesn't cause skin cancer? <laughs> if you're not eating seed oils, you know, like... Wow, wait a minute. But that's misinformation, Tucker. You're going to get tagged <laughs> for misinformation. That has happened. Anyway, you can't say that. That's misinformation. So, yeah. Well, I, I very much appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you for coming on again. I think we covered a lot in this podcast. Where can people find your stuff? Well, I'm... People, yeah. My blog is uh, uh, yelling-stop.blogspot.com, and I post my podcast appearances and the interviews that I do there, and I'm quite active on Twitter. Uh, my handle's Tucker Goodrich, and, um, you know, if you have questions or, you know, I try, I try and post um, podcast notes, um, and stuff so that people can see the research behind it so that everybody understands that, you know, I'm not making this up. This is solidly grounded in the literature. We ain't making this up. So yeah, check out Tucker's stuff. Say hi to him on Twitter. And if you guys have questions, send them to Tucker or you can always email my team at radicalhealth@heartandsoil.co. Um, I think that it'll be fun to dive back into PUFAs. It's something we haven't talked about in a while, but this is a really good this, sort of This is another great thing. conversation, Paul. Thank yeah. you. You do a really good job of getting down into the weeds of this <laughs> podcast, and people really seem to appreciate that last discussion that we did. So yeah, yeah. It's good and stuff. We'll pair them and we'll link them in the show notes. So thank you, Tucker. I hope to see you in Costa Rica, or maybe I'll come ski with you or snowboard in Idaho soon, my man. Excellent. Great. Have a good day, Paul.